letter. The envelope was from feeling guilty on uh, Wayward Road, anywhere, California. And inside this envelope were three things. There was a little handwritten note, and there was an old parking ticket and a $5 bill. The note said this. I thought this was interesting. I've been carrying this ticket around for over 40 years. I always intended to pay. Forgive me if I don't give you my information. With respect, Dave. From 1974, back then they didn't even have a system to track out-of-state license plates, so they didn't know who Dave was, but apparently Dave has carried this guilty conscience and this ticket around for over 40 years. He stuck a five in with it, but the parking ticket was just two bucks, so I don't know if that was for interest or just to cover his conscience. Um, That's great. I love that. What Dave is highlighting is something that maybe you've experienced. You ever felt guilty about something and couldn't let go of it? It's just a human thing to have guilt that lingers. And for some people, a counselor friend of mine calls it just free-floating guilt. If anything goes wrong in the world, anywhere in the world, you feel guilty because of it had to have something to do with you. It's just a human condition to feel guilty. And so how do you get rid of guilt? Not just the actuality of you've done something wrong and it needs to be made right, but just the, the feeling of guilt as well. In my experience, just as a pastor and as a person, as a human being who's lived with this as well, guilt is like that, that dust when you've swept the floor and you're trying to sweep it into the dustpan. You know what I'm talking about? There's actually a term for that little line that never goes away. Like you've been, you, you sweep it all in the pan, you pull the pan back, and there's still a little dust line. It's called frust. And you sweep again, and you pull the dustpan back again, and you sweep again, and there's still the line there. To, I don't know. What do you do with it? I should confession time to my wife. I just got to do this. I'll get it next time. Do you ever vacuum the floor and there's that little piece of lint that the vacuum will not pick up and you go over it from every angle and, and it still won't do it. So you pick it up and you look at it and what do you do? What I do is throw it back down so you give the chance, one more chance to get that thing up. How do you get rid of guilt? It's like the frust. It's like the lint. It's, wouldn't it be great if there's a three-second rule for guilt? You just pick it up. Okay, we're good. It's, it's not that simple. However, God does have a system for dealing with the guilt that we have, the guilt that we actually carry and the feelings that comes with it. And I wouldn't say it's simple. It's complicated and it's costly, but it's available. And we've been looking through the feasts of Israel, and the feast we're going to look at today points to God's solution for humanity's sin. We're talking about the seven feasts that God gave to Israel 3,500 years ago. If you're newer here, you might be thinking, what in the world? Why are we talking about Jewish feasts? I thought this was a Christian church. Well, the interesting thing is that God used the Jewish people to prepare the world for Jesus. So by looking at these seven feasts that God gave to the Jewish people as they left slavery in Egypt and made their way to the land that would become Israel, he gave them seven holidays all at once. And as they celebrated these year after year after year, it taught them to be ready for Jesus. So we who are trying to look from the other direction toward Jesus, learn something about him, first of all, by looking at these. Secondly, four at least of the feasts, if not six of them, have had their fulfillment already through Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and the church. But at least one, if not three of them, still have future fulfillment for us. So there's things even now that we can be looking towards our future. So I want to look at these seven. If you're interested in writing these down, you're kind of interested in the more scholarly thing. The seven feasts of Israel start with the Feast of Passover, This is a spring feast. You may have heard of it. Passover followed simply by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They all happen at the same time. And then there's the Feast of First Fruits. We're going to talk about those next weekend and then two weekends. 
You go 50 days later and you get the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost literally means 50th. It's 50 days after those first three feasts. And we talked about that earlier in this series, if you want to go back and look at that. Then you go all the way to the fall, and we get into the last three, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and then finally the Feast of Shelters or Booths. Today we're going to be looking at the Day of Atonement. It's actually kicked off 10 days before by Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. In the fall, people will kick off the whole celebration with 10 days of fasting and praying and repentance. And it's just a time where collectively all the people of Israel would start getting their hearts ready for something big that God was going to do in their life. So you all have all of this preparation. It leads up to the one big day, the Day of Atonement. Now there's so much drama that happens on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And we want to delve into that. If you've got a Bible, you may want to start looking for Leviticus chapter 16. And we're going to delve into it, just looking back in hindsight, how all of this prepared people for Jesus 1,500 years later. For 1,500 years, people of Israel were reenacting something that just became glaringly obvious. This is the real thing when it actually happened. So the first element of the Day of Atonement was a high priest. And this high priest would stand between the people and God, and he would be the one representative for all the people to God on that day. And uh, the thing about this is that God wanted to illustrate to the people in a very real way just how dangerous it would be for an unholy person to come before a holy God. It's just not going to end well for anyone who's unholy. It's not that God hates you. It's just that your sin would destroy you to come into the presence of a pure and holy and powerful and awesome God. So the priest had to make some preparations himself before he came before, the, before God on behalf of the people. So we're going to read out of Leviticus chapter 16. I'm sure you have Leviticus memorized already, but let me just go ahead and read it for the visitors. All right, we're going to start on verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. Now Aaron was the first high priest, Moses' brother. Don't go into the holy place of the tabernacle or the temple Uh, whenever you choose. If he does, he will die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. Now, when Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put on a linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. So much preparation here. Now, Aaron was the first high priest for Israel, but he wasn't the last high priest. This was repeated for 1,500 years all the way into the lifetime of Jesus. These high priests, one day a year, would prepare themselves. They would bathe themselves in the the laver, the pool of water. They would put on the special clothing that would be the thing that everybody would see, and it was a spectacular garment. And they would go, and as as all of this was happening, there's just a sense of drama and awe as all the people were watching this take place. And it would only be with this thorough preparation before he would go in there. Because he's going into the most holy place on earth. This is the place where God has made his presence dwell. Now, obviously, it's obvious to me anyway, there's nowhere in the universe that God can be contained. He like, created this place. There's nothing that can hold him. However, God chose to make in that one place, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple in Jerusalem, a place where his glory would reside, above the Ark of the Covenant. And so this is just a place where heaven and earth met. It was just such a special thing to think about. Now, I want, to think, I want you to think about this. If, if you know, like if you were the high priest, and you know that you're going to be representing all of your people, 
you better have all your stuff together. You, you got to really think through what you're doing. This is a serious moment. And I want you to envision, maybe just imagine what it would have been like 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus in Jerusalem when people would come to the temple on the Day of Atonement to worship. They've been fasting for 10 days. The high priest has got all of his clothes on. The temple was a magnificent place. About 30 years before Jesus was born, King Herod had upgraded the place. It was massive. You could fit easily 200,000 people on the grounds of the temple. It's almost as big as a NASCAR racetrack. It's just enormous. Just imagine hundreds of thousands of people and the priest offering these sacrifices and going in on your behalf. It was just an awe-inspiring moment, and everybody's waiting to see what would happen. Now, we're going to go back to Leviticus, because before the priest went in there for everyone else, he had to do something for himself. And we're down in verse 6. Aaron, that's the high priest, will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. So he's got to do, like, he's got his own sins, to atone for. He's got to get himself right with God before he goes before God on behalf of the people. Now, if you want to go over in your Bible to Hebrews in the New Testament, it's towards the end of the Bible. And Hebrews is written by a Jewish person who had become a Christian to other Jewish people who had become Christians. So if you're ever trying to understand something about the Old Testament, Hebrews is your place to go. As a Christian, it'll help you make a lot of sense what all this stuff in the Old Testament was about. And it says in Hebrews 9, 7, only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people that had been committed in ignorance. Now this is where things get really interesting. We have the next two elements of the Day of Atonement. We, first of all, we have the high priest who represents everybody to God. Then we have two goats, a sacrificial goat and a scapegoat. So let's go back to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 7. Then the high priest must take the two male goats, present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. So which one's which? Well, he's to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord... And which will be carrying the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. So he casts lots. The Lord determines one of these goats is going to be sacrificed and one of them is going to be a scapegoat. This is interesting. You go down to verse 15 now. Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. And there he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it, just as he did with the bull's blood. So as all this preparation is taking place. Remember, the, the bull was for his own sin. Now he sacrificed the goat on behalf of all the people. You go down to verse 20. It says, When Aaron had finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. Now I want you to picture what happens next as I read it. The high priest will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the sins of the people into a desolate land. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I don't know if you ever knew that was a thing before. This is literally where we get the expression scapegoat. The priest would lay all the sins of the people on that one goat, and the goat would go away. What a powerful image. You get the idea of a scapegoat, right? You got kids or a brother or sister? It's it's the person you conveniently blame for stuff that you don't want to be responsible for. 
Have you ever been driving in the car and you hear kid, your kids in the back seat? She hit me. He hit me. He's looking out my window. Tell him to stop breathing my air. It's like, oh, gosh. It's, we always are looking for someone to put the blame on, somebody else, because it's not my fault. It's their fault. If they hadn't said that, if they hadn't done that, we get the idea of a scapegoat. It's like you're going to take the punishment. But let me ask you this question. What if you could actually put your blame on someone else and get away with it? Would you do that? Things that you just know, you're guilty of it. But you can pin it on someone else, and they'll get the suffering and the pain and the punishment for it. Would you do that? That's exactly what's going on here. Through the high priest, everyone in Israel was putting their sins on that goat to be led away. And they had a guy. It was his job to take away the sins of the people. Who gets that job? Like, you're pretty sure you know what your neighbors have done this year, and their sins are also on that goat. You know what you've done this year. Like, nobody wants to touch that goat. Nobody wants to have the job of taking all the sins of all the people out into the desert. So what the tradition was, now this isn't from the Bible, we just kind of have learned this from tradition, they would get a Gentile, a non-Jewish person to do it, to take that goat away, because nobody wanted to be responsible for it. And that guy better do a good job, because, you know, Day of Atonement's over, you don't want to be back like the next Tuesday, and there's that goat in your neighbor's yard eating grass. It's like, I, I sent the sins away, I want them to stay away. Another tradition is, the, the Bible doesn't say that that goat gets killed, but tradition says that the Gentile who took it out into the desert made it take a, a long trip or a short trip off a long cliff. You know, it's like leave the gun, take the cannoli kind of thing. So nobody wanted that goat to come back because the sins were gone. And it was a beautiful picture now. Now here's my question for you. Why were there two goats? Why, just try to put yourself in God's mind. Why did he create a system where there are two goats? You think about, there's a couple of aspects going on here. One goat is sacrificed. And so for 1,500 years, God is putting in people's minds that sin carries a price. That sin actually results in loss of life. That an innocent animal dies because you sinned. But then there's another goat. There's another concept. That when God says you're forgiven your sins go away. They're not going to be thought of or brought up again. You're forgiven and it's all forgotten. It's a really interesting thought. Now I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 10 because I say that it's all forgiven and forgotten, but I got to say there's an asterisk there. It's kind of. So back in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1, the old system under the law of Moses, that Old Testament system, was only a shadow. It was a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that Old Testament system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide what? Perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If those sacrifices could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sin year after year. For it's not possible, this is verse 4, it's not on the screen, it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins of people. You need a guy for that. So let me ask you this question. Why did God make Israel go through that ritual year after year after year for 1,500 years if, as Hebrews says, all it did was really remind them of their guilt and their sin for 1,500 years? What's going on here? Why would he do that? 
I think maybe on one level, God wants to reinforce for all of us, including them, the high price that sin exacts. That sin ruins relationships. It ruins your relationship with God. It ruins your relationship with other people. That sin does great damage to your soul. It does eternal damage to your soul, if not remedied. That there's an enormous price to pay when you break fellowship with God and other people through sin. And we see that repeated far, so over and over. But there's a far deeper message here. Because all of it, the high priest, the sacrificial goat, the scapegoat, is starting to put a placeholder in people's minds that maybe one person can stand between the people and God. Maybe one perfect person could take your sins away. Maybe one perfect person could take the sins to never be seen again. This over and over and over was preparing us to be ready to receive Jesus. One perfect sacrifice can forgive sins. One perfect person can mediate between God and man. One perfect person can make the sins be forgotten, never be remembered again. What the whole point of this is, that Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrificial animal. Jesus is the scapegoat. We see that over and over repeated. I want you to think about this. If you look at the events that happened when Jesus died, it just, it just pops out once you start knowing to look for it. On the Friday that Jesus was standing with uh, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and Pilate presented Jesus to the crowd of Jewish people who were calling for his execution, what did the crowd say to Pilate? I know I hear you, crucify him. That's what they said, but it's not what they said first. Look at John 19.15. What did they say first? Away with him. Away with him. That's scapegoat language. They've been saying that for 1,500 years ago. They have no idea that they're fulfilling prophecy as they're talking. Away with him. Crucify him. Let's even take it a step further. Who was it that took the scapegoat out into the wilderness? They'd always get a Gentile to do it, right? Who took Jesus outside the city gates of Jerusalem to execute him? Gentile Roman soldiers. Matthew 27, 31. After they, the, the Gentile Roman soldiers, had mocked Jesus, they took off the robe, they put on his own clothes on him, they led him away to crucify him. He's the scapegoat, he's the sacrificial goat. And then look at this. This is even, even more powerful. This is Isaiah the prophet from 700 years before Jesus lived. He saw a vision of what we did to Jesus, what they did. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised, he was rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care, yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, like a punishment for his own sins. No, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Do you not see this? God has been planting this idea in people's minds for ever that one perfect person can remedy all the situation that we have screwed up that one perfect man can take away our sins and our guilt and it will be completely gone and it will be a start of a whole new relationship with God and the high priest look go back over to Hebrews chapter 10 again you go down to verses 11 and 12 
Under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament system, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. Jesus is our high priest. He is our sacrificial animal. He is our scapegoat. He takes away the sins of the whole world. As the, the Bible says, and I think it's in 1 Timothy, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Jesus Christ. And he takes away all of our debt. I, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the comedian Cameron Bradford. He posted something really interesting on Twitter. He said, I got a solution for all of our student loan debt and all our home debt and mortgage debt and all that other stuff. Here's what we need to do. We just need to get one guy. We need to pin all the debt on him and then just kill him. Debt is gone. It was on Twitter. And uh, a guy responded, he said, Cameron, buddy, I'm a pastor, and pal, have I got some good news for you. Can you imagine what it must be like? I want you to do this. I want you to think of the, the guilt that you carry that you just don't think you can get rid of. And don't imagine on the head of a goat walking out into the wilderness. Imagine on the head of a person who is perfect and who has never done anything wrong, but who is willing to step in place that you deserve to be and to say, I'll do this for you. And it's not just so I can take away your guilt. It's because I want to be friends with you. I want you to experience what true eternal life, I want you to experience the life that my father created you to have. And yes, this world is a broken place. And yes, you've done wrong things. We all have, all have sinned, all have gone far short of the glory of God. But God's not content to leave us there in our sins and just say, you figure it out. You broke it, you fix it. He fixes it himself. He carries it on himself. And it's really up to you to, to say yes to that. I love what the Bible says, Psalm 32.1. What joy for those who are, whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Psalm 103.12. God's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. I want you to get this because it's very easy to stand here and look back 2,000 years ago to what happened with Jesus and 3,500 years ago and just take for granted the reality that we have been living with. And I think some of us today may have just gone to sleep on what Jesus did for us. And you need to reawaken in your soul the fact that where you would be without him is an incredibly dark place. Some of you need to awaken to the fact as you are a Christian that this is true and it's for you. You're not the exception. This is for everyone. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you think that you, you're like the one person that God's going to look at and go, no, not you. I didn't mean you when I said that. You're not. And some of you are just, I'm going to be honest, you thought that Christianity is something that you will get to eventually. Faith in Jesus is something that you'll explore when the time is right. The time is now. The Bible says in Hebrews in another place, today is the day that you should do something about this. You know, don't wait for some other time. If you feel that God is putting something in your heart to do, you should do it now. You know, maybe you need to do what the Bible says in Acts twenty two sixteen. You're like, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized, washing your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. You need to know that your sins can be forgiven. And, and I can't guarantee you that if you don't come to Jesus. You might think there's another way, but I don't know what it is. And I mean, good luck to you if you think you want to try it, but I don't know why you would do that because you don't have to and it won't work and there's no better life than the one that you will find in Jesus Christ. Look what he did for you. He suffered for you. He died for you. God doesn't want to hold your sins against you. It would be a relief to him to forgive you. 
He doesn't want to ever bring it up. It doesn't need to be a conversation point ever again. He wants to move on to the eternal life that he's promised you through Jesus, and it's coming. We're one day closer to it than we ever have been before. I mean, if you are a Christian, just live in this reality. Soak it up, feel it, know it in the bottom of your heart that it's true. And if you're not, why don't you leave here today knowing that it's also true for you because you did something with it and you said yes to Jesus. I really invite you to do something with this. God wants you to be part of his family. You know, if you are somebody who just really does struggle with the idea of God forgiving you, the next time that your mind just wants to start that loop again, telling you all the things you've done wrong in your life, if it's somebody actually in your life that wants to tell you, I think you should just look around and go, I don't see any goats around here. That goat is gone. Those sins are forgiven. My past is in my past, and there's something so much better in my future because Jesus has called me to it. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so blessed. Thank you so much for the life that you have given us. It's eternal. It's a joy to be able to talk about things like this with people. I thank you that as I look around, I see so many people who have accepted your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, thank you for being willing to give your life for us. We, we can never do anything to earn that. We just accept it and say thank you. Father, I pray you would help us all to just accept this, to live in it, to do what we know we need to do. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.